the House come to order if members can take their seats. This budget is a huge job maker, and the number one solution to economic insecurity is a job. Hungry children can't learn, and it's our responsibility to try to help. Equality and opportunity. I believe most people are here because they want to do some good. I think you know by now exactly what those voices and that music signify. It's time for a brand new episode of Capital Ideas. It's the long-running podcast, now in its 15th year, where members of the majority Democrats in the Washington State House of Representatives drop by the studio at the Capitol and talk about ideas, hence Capital Ideas. Today's guest is First District Representative Shelley Kloba. Shelley lives in Kenmore at the northern tip of Lake Washington. She's co-chair, along with Representative Sharon Wiley, of the House Committee on Regulated Substances and Gaming. She's also, and you're going to hear a lot about this in a few minutes, one of the state's most passionate defenders of our constitutional right to keep our private lives private. We had a good conversation on Friday, February 3rd, 2023, and this is it. Welcome to Capital Ideas, Representative Shelley Kloba. I think you're a four-timer now on Capital Ideas, and that says a lot about your energy and the things that you do around this place. Shelley represents the 1st District, lives in Kenmore, and here in Olympia is beginning her seventh session as a state lawmaker. Welcome to Capital Ideas, Representative Shelley Kloba. It's great to have you here again. And it's always my pleasure. You are now the chair of the Regulated Substances and Gaming Committee here in the state legislature, and we can talk about that in a minute. But the thing that I think most people identify you with is the concept of privacy, and particularly online privacy, privacy in everything internet. That's what I want to start by talking about today is your data privacy bill for 2023. You've had some before, but this is now, and it seems to be a more important issue now than it ever has been. Yes, and I would totally agree with you on that. So it's called the People's Privacy Act, and it is very similar to a bill I have dropped in the past, but it has a few things that are a little bit different. But first, I want to talk about, like, why why do I keep doing this? (laughs) That is a good question. (laughs) It's... uh, We have a fundamental right to privacy, and it is guaranteed in our Constitution. It's critical to maintaining our own freedom as well as for us to have a functioning democracy. Privacy is an important piece of that. You can imagine the chilling effect of having facial recognition at a political rally, for instance. People wanting to participate in that very fundamental First Amendment right could be stymied a little bit if they think that there will be facial recognition. Things like our bodily autonomy is a really important concept. And if we have states who have restricted those rights, getting the data that is collected when you are using things like a menstruation tracking app, 
for instance. That's important data for someone who wants to know your private business. And when it's a state who wants to know that, it's of concern. So these are issues that, you know, have long been important. They escalated in their importance once everything went online, as we saw during the initial parts of the COVID pandemic. And it is different today than it was pre-COVID, where there are so many things that we do online. We not only are accessing the marketplace, but we're accessing our business place, education, medicine. Telemedicine has been a great thing, but it's important to understand that it also comes with some data privacy concerns. So I feel like um, I'm never going to get tired of this conversation, and I don't feel that Washingtonians are fully protected yet, and so I will continue working on this. Not to be cynical about this, but is it not too late? Have, have not all the cows left this barn years ago because essentially people just don't have any privacy anymore and they seem to voluntarily give it up? I do hear a lot of that kind of fatalistic attitude pretty frequently. However, we as a society have never pulled back when someone is being exploited And essentially, if we cannot go anywhere online or often even out in our communities without being tracked, then that's exploitation. And we no longer have child labor because we decided as a society that was inappropriate. We weren't going to exploit people that way. We have a 40-hour work week and we have uh, protections for farm workers. And, you know, you're not allowed to discriminate against women in the workplace, etc. We, as a society, have seen when these types of exploitation happen, we decide that's not okay and we make laws. Additionally, there's a power differential. Oftentimes, we go online, say, for instance, to conduct telemedicine. Those are things that are pretty important to us, and we can't do without. If there is no way for me to do that without leaving a trail of data, like, for instance, um, there are some healthcare portals who collect information about what websites do you go to, what is your income, what uh, is your educational attainment. They're collecting all kinds of information that is not protected under HIPAA, and is not central to their mission of providing you that portal so that you can communicate with your healthcare provider. And people have no transparency into that. And so I think some of that fatalistic attitude is forgetting the tools that we have. I think some of that attitude is because people just don't know how much is being collected about them. What are some of the ultimate uses of of these data that get collected? Is this political? Is it used for marketing purposes? Is it used for something even more nefarious, possibly? You know, I think it is all about what exactly you use it for. And there are both uh, benevolent and uh, nefarious uses. If we think about things like biometric identifiers, which are your fingerprints, voice prints, your gait pattern, even things like your keystroke dynamics when you are um, on your computer, these are things that can be collected. Of course, every website you've ever visited and how long you stayed on it and what things you've typed into a browser, all of those pieces, any one of them by themselves probably aren't that important, but there are tons of them. And in the same way that a pointillist painting, each individual dot doesn't really 
mean much. But when you zoom out and you have enough of those dots, it presents a very clear picture of who we are, what we do, where we go, what we think, what do we find important, what do we buy. And all of that information can be used, just like you said, for marketing, for manipulating our behavior, for tailoring information that comes to us, creating that little filter bubble so that um, we're not seeing the broad view of information, but we're seeing what, for instance, Google or one of the search engines thinks we want to see based on our past searches. So it, it has some really far-reaching uh, effects. I just want to point out that this is the first time in the history of political podcasts that anyone has created a metaphor and used the word pointillist. <laughs> well, I will have you know, I got an A in my Art History 101 course, and I never thought it would come in handy. And look. It shows. <laughs> You've kind of sketched out now the the situation and the entire issue. Tell me about the bill that you are sponsoring. House Bill 1616 does something specific. I think it's important to talk about what those specifics are and also what is the prognosis for the bill. All right. There's a lot in there. First off, I think the basic thing is that it grants consumers certain rights and things like the right to know what information a company is gathering about you the right to access it, and the right to correct it or delete it. Those are all important things. There's two that are coming back this or coming into the bill this year that are a little new. One of them is to refuse consent for any processing of your data that um, is captured that isn't essential to the primary transaction. So, for instance, I go on my banking website to conduct business and the financial information of how much money and where it's going and all of those things about my account, those are central to to that transaction. But what is not central is where did I come to the website from? Where did I go after I left the website? What information did I look at on the website? Like those things are not essential and it's often invisible. So being able to refuse consent for processing of anything that's outside of the essential transaction, I think is really important. And then the right not to be subject to surreptitious surveillance. Your camera on your computer can be activated outside of you. That's a very uncomfortable thing for a lot of people. Many people have that little toggle switch across the top that they can shut off their camera, but many people don't. And so I think that that's an important newer concept. The bill brings back something that is a longstanding concept in our judicial system, and that is that there is no right without remedy, meaning that we give you this slate of rights and you have no recourse when those rights are violated, then those rights aren't really worth anything at all. This allows for in a civil action against a covered entity, so this is mostly businesses, $2,000 per violation or the actual damages, which is whichever is greater. And the bill goes into great detail about defining harm. If you are in a civil action against a Washington governmental entity, it is the same. And if it is more than just an individual, but maybe a broader class of people who are being, whose rights are being violated, then the attorney general's office can take action. Um, it is considered a matter of consumer protection. These are things that would, I think, create a good incentive for companies to follow the rules. 
what is the status of this bill as of today, which is February 3rd, 2023? It has been introduced and it has not yet been scheduled for a hearing. There's a bill that is similar but more narrowly focused that my colleague, Representative Vandana Slatter, has put forward. And the two bills are not in competition with each other. I think they can easily add together. It remains to be seen what kind of appetite the committee has for taking on both at this time. But I think even just uh, the passage of hers and continuing that conversation is very helpful in, in this um, my bill that's a little broader. Um, she has some very important concepts in her bill that are going to you know, translate well or, or um, line up well. Why? This is a good illustration of the axiom you hear around here a lot, which is that it's not really that important whose name is on the bill as long as the goal is accomplished. Indeed. And what committee has these bills now? They go through civil rights and judiciary. In addition to privacy, you have been elected by the people of the 1st District to come down here and do all kinds of things on their behalf, as well as do things on behalf of every person in the state of Washington. What else have you got going on this session? I have two bills that address our housing affordability crisis, and they take a private sector approach to the affordability crisis. And uh, they are tools that cities and counties can adopt that would allow for a property tax exemption when a property owner of a single family home rents out their accessory dwelling unit, commonly known as a mother-in-law apartment, if they rent that out at a specific level of affordability, then they will get a credit to their property tax. And uh, the other bill, same mechanism, but it's targeted towards older apartment buildings. And you know, I think most people are aware that there is a, a large pressure to gentrify, you know, tear down the, the things that we already have to build new. And that often takes us about five steps back in terms of affordability. So this is targeted at those property owners who have buildings that are 25 years or more that they offer at a certain below market rent that is affordable to um, folks with lower incomes. And when they do that, they will get a break on their property taxes. So this is kind of using the tool of incentive rather than the tool of mandate. Exactly. It utilizes what we already have. I think I saw a statistic once that the, the number of empty bedrooms in the Puget Sound is enough to house the people who live outside on the streets uh, every night. And so it's a matter of you know utilizing those things well. And if it just takes a little bit of a nudge to convert your basement into an apartment that someone can rent out, there's an advantage, obviously, for the person who, you know, to expand the rental market that's um, below the market level rent. But it also helps the homeowner because oftentimes our biggest asset is our home. And this is a way for that to work for us in making us some money. I should point out that many cities across the state currently ban accessory dwelling units, but one of the housing-related bills that is, seems to be moving pretty well through the legislature this year would require that the ban on ADUs in cities above a certain population would be repealed as a way to get at the housing crisis. Yes, and this particular bill 
can apply to the areas which currently allow ADUs. And then if more people build ADUs because they're allowed to on their property, then that can only increase this. But again, it is a voluntary tool that cities and counties can use if it is something that is going to be beneficial to address their particular situation. In addition to all this, you've got your job as chair of the Regulated Substances and Gaming Committee. Catch us up with what's going on in that particular committee this session. This is a a renamed committee, as so many are this session. Um, It's one of a couple of changes. So we changed the name because commerce and gaming was a very general aspect of uh, what we do. And we really do deal more specifically with tobacco, cannabis, alcohol, and gambling. Uh, As well as we've added vaping uh, because that was not perfectly clear before in our jurisdictional kind of portfolio. And another thing is our structure. I have the pleasure of serving as chair along with Chair Sharon Wiley. So she is a person who has been on the committee in past years, was off for a little while doing other things, and now she's back. And so I'm really delighted to work with her because she was around when I-502 was passed and they set the rules in place for that. So she has a great deal of historical perspective that's important as we are looking at, you know, 10 years uh, past that initiative process and, you know, what are the things we need to do Uh, to advance our cannabis industry and what are the things that we didn't do and other states have done. One of those, for instance, is allowing for residential cannabis agriculture. Also, some folks call that home grow. It seems odd that a consumer can go to the store and buy a tomato and they can also grow a tomato in their garden. Tomatoes are a legal product and I think it is only fair that if cannabis is a legal product for adult use, that you might be able to grow it in your home. The bill has a lot of safeguards on it. Of course, this is dealing with personal use. Landlords can prohibit you growing in their property through your lease, just like they do with smoking, for instance. And we add in this year, as opposed to a previous iteration, we add in some civil liability if you haven't appropriately stored and safeguarded your cannabis plants or product that you can be prosecuted for that. So it it adds that element of required responsibility. So I'm excited about that one. It's just a matter of fairness to me. I've kept you a long time. I know that you, just like just about every other lawmaker around here, has a schedule that is essentially insane. I need to let you go. But before I do, I want to find out, is there anything else that you would like to mention that we haven't talked about? You know, there is one, and uh, you know from talking to me before that I came to the legislature through a pathway of being an advocate, and so that is still something that is very dear to my heart, and I had a constituent come to me about an issue. It was basically a good government transparency kind of an issue, and it may seem small in the grand scheme of things, but it was important to him, and then in conversations over the summer, two different people brought up the same issue completely unrelated to him. So I thought, okay, this is the core of a bill. And so the bill ultimately just makes it so that when there is a required 30-day written comment period, which often happens when government is going to, is contemplating a change, they'll have a written comment period. And they're required to publish that fact 
but it doesn't include an end date. And so the member of the public is left to try to figure out 30 days, which month does that include, weekends, what have you. So this is just a way to have some very specific clarity in a tiny part of the bill, but in an area that makes a difference for people. So I always welcome good ideas, and I'm hoping that this one will sail through. Well, Shelley, as always, it's great to be able to spend some time with you. Uh, you you're always one of the busier people around here, and that means you've got a lot of ideas and there's a lot of things that you accomplish. I appreciate you giving us as much time as you have today, and thank you again. We have been speaking with Representative Shelley Kloba from Washington's 1st Legislative District, and this has been Capital Ideas. Thank you, Shelley. It's always my pleasure, Dan. Well, that's another Capital Ideas for the archives, and I hope you found it worthwhile. If you did, I encourage you to subscribe at any of the popular podcast aggregators or by visiting our website, housedemocrats.wa.gov, and hitting the media button at the top of the page. This is your state government. What happens here matters, and you deserve to know about it. I'm Dan Frizzell for the Washington State House Democratic Caucus, putting people first since 1889. Thanks for your time.